Today is the fifth day of our September October seven day session. It's the third of October twenty nineteen. And we're going to continue to read from Subtle Sound, the Zen teachings of Maureen Stewart, edited by Roko Sherry Chayat. And we left off where Maureen Stewart was talking about um, the, the three refuges, the three treasures, um, as they relate to our Zen practice and to our Sashin practice. And she was saying how um, taking refuge in the Buddha means for us taking full responsibility for ourselves and engaging in whatever we're doing wholeheartedly No one can teach us how to do that. It's, it's something we have to discover for ourselves through trial and error. It's, it's really um, an art. Uh, Zen practice is an art. It, 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 it requires that we engage our whole being in it. She continues, Someone who practices archery told me, I can stand up, I can do all the wonderful preparations, but when it comes to letting the arrow go, I can't do it. And presumably, he or she is talking here about um, Japanese archery, which comes with with the whole um, ritual. I said, Stop the eye from doing it. Just shoot. Thoughts of making a mistake, not hitting the target, being embarrassed in front of the teacher, these are what cause chaos and confusion. Let the eye go and just shoot. Let the eye go and just work. Let the eye go and just sit. The problem is that we... We cling so tenaciously to this I that we fabricate for ourselves with our thoughts. And this fabrication becomes so automatic that we don't even see it as such. We, we see it as this I as, as um, having some kind of inherent reality to it. We've we've reinforced this habit over lifetimes, down through through the generations. But we we all of us have the extraordinarily good karma to have encountered the Dharma and to have a practice, so that that each time we. Uh, drop our thoughts we're weakening this habit formation and, that, and that's really what we could say that the, the, the I is is this habit
mostly it's this it's this just chipping away that we engage in this um, noticing that we're we're thinking creating a um, some kind of narrative around the ourselves around the I and we shift back to the breath or the con can liken this to um, a glacier melting just just the 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 warming slowly wearing that glacier away drop by drop it's a gradual process but glaciers sometimes also carve icebergs there can be a whole ice face softening and then suddenly a huge piece of ice falls off this is this can also happen for us um, suddenly we're able to drop a whole lot of stuff all at once there's a story that illustrates this in the um, autobiography of um, Master Sheng Yin something that, that happened to him just a little bit of, of, of um, background before we get to the actual story um, on, on Master Sheng Yin um, he, he was born in mainland China into a, into a poor tenant family and um, witnessed devastating floods. Actually, when he was a, a, a toddler, um, the family's whole farm washed away in a massive flood on the, on the Yangtze River. And then this, he saw, witnessed this later on again, uh, with many, many drowned, many killed, corpses floating floating by. Um, he was the youngest of, of, um, of six children, and uh, he was quite weak and sickly, and um, didn't actually start talking till he was five years old. Um, I think similar thing with, with Einstein, so he's, he's in good company. Um, when he was uh, 14, he entered a monastery near, near his family's um, rented farmland, and it was called Wolf Mountain. And he immediately felt at home there and, and found meaning and purpose to his life. Um, but by 1945, this was a few years after he, he went there, um, things were getting uh, very uh, unstable in China. The, the, um, the Japanese were defeated in 1945, and this sort of let loose the conflict between the nationalists and the communists. And many people, uh, including the, the monks in the monastery, um, got caught in the crossfire of the, this, these conflicts. And he comment he comments in the in the autobiography that his his young life was really marked by turmoil and upheaval, and he found some some refuge f from this in, 
on entering the monastery, but they're, they're, even there, um, there was a lot of turmoil. And the, the monks in the monastery got mistreated by both sides of the conflict. And um, over time, little by little, the, the, the monks at Wolf Mountain fled. Many of them went to Shanghai, where things were a little bit more stable. Um, but the, the, it was a very different kind of monastery that he entered there, one that basically, in order for the monks to eat, they had to uh, rush around doing um, funeral services just, just to make enough to survive. And his education as a monk stopped at that point. Um, he was able to go into a Buddhist academy for a short time because he longed for, for education. Um, but then in, in 1949, the communists invaded Shanghai and um, those, those Buddhists who were left um, fled because it just became impossible to... Uh, uh, it was too dangerous for the monks in, in, uh, once the communists took over. And it took resources to, to, to get to somewhere else. Um, and Xing Yan, young Xinring, had no money, no connections. Um, and he saw that his only way out would be to join the Nationalist Army, Army, which at that time was offering free travel to Taiwan. And so he disrobed and joined the army and, and got um, to Taiwan. And so he, but he was, it was not easy once you were in the army to get out of it. And even though he wanted to continue being a monk um, and tried to keep his precepts as, as a soldier, for instance, being vegetarian as best he could, um, it was. It was a. He felt very stuck. Um, deserters would be would be punished very severely, and if they repeated their attempts to desert, they'd be be shot. He he kept on trying to keep it, doing zazen. He would do it on his bunk through the night um, in a a dormitory that he shared with others. And he'd do prostrations towards a Buddha figure that that was in a temple on the mountain behind where the barracks were. It was a very, very um, hard life. Um, They had hardly even uniforms or or, um, weapons, and the food was so poor that they all suffered from malnutrition. So this was the, the sort of place of extremity that it was at when things changed for him on meeting um, an, an exceptional monk. And this is what he says about, about this meeting. Back on the base, I continued to wrestle with frustration, doubt, and the desire to leave the military. As the years passed, Mao Zedong's power only strengthened in China. We began to hear the saying, when Mao coughs, the entire world trembles. The population in Taiwan was 7 million, and the mainland was approaching 1 billion. 
it was hard to imagine how we could prevail. Most of my fellow monastic classmates who had joined the army had escaped and become monks again, but they weren't very happy monks because Taiwanese society was so unstable. People were spreading rumors that the monks from the mainland were spies. The national government jailed many of them, and those who were not jailed were on the run, disguising themselves in lay people's clothing and hiding in private homes. They didn't dare stay in the monasteries. I still didn't have the guts to escape, preferring the army to jail. Life in Ta- Taiwan was becoming Orwellian. You could be arrested at any time for any reason. There were frequent shutdowns. No court permits were needed for search and seizure. So I stayed in the army, feeling kumen and doubting I would ever be a monk again. This expression kumen um, is akin to uh, depressed or um, desperate. Then I met Master Ling Yuan Hong Miao, and my life changed. We met while I was visiting a new temple in Kaohsiung called the Kaohsiung Buddhist Hall. Ling Yuan was visiting from Geelong where he lived and where he was later given a piece of land to build a monastery. It is common for monastics to be allowed to stay at a monastery for a night or two when they are traveling instead of having to stay at a hotel. Master Ling Yuan was shorter than me with a big belly and a round face. When he was sitting, he looked like an ahat, one who has achieved enlightenment. He walked very slowly and spoke very gently. Although he seldom smiled, he radiated compassion, so people weren't afraid of him. He usually wore robes with holes and patches. He didn't care if people looked down on him. He didn't have the air of a great monk. He was from Zhejiang, a province in on the east coast of China, south of Shanghai, and didn't know much Mandarin. But because I was from Jiangsu, I was able to converse with him. Despite my uniform, he didn't treat me as a layperson. He heard that because of a lack of space, we were going to sleep on the same platform that evening, although lay people were not supposed to share a sleeping area with monks. We are going to investigate Chan together this evening, he told me. When Ling Yuan travelled, he didn't care if there was no bed. He just found a place to sit in a cross-legged posture, similar to sitting meditation, although he would not sit up straight. He dropped his head forward and slept that way. Two sutras speak of sleeping yoga. The posture takes practice. Otherwise, when you fall asleep, you will bend your back forward and you won't be able to sleep comfortably. With practice, you can sit up properly and really fall asleep. There are no dreams in this posture, and you can get a good night's rest. When Ling Yuan sat this way, he was very stable and looked like a Buddha statue. We sat together in meditation on the sleeping platform under a huge green mosquito net. Then I reclined and fell into a deep dreamless sleep that was joyful and relaxed. When I awoke, Ling Yuan was still sitting, and I joined him. Ling Yuan really spoke except when spoken to. Can I ask you a question? I finally blurted out. Yes, 
he replied. I started with one question, but suddenly there were a hundred, each more perplexing than the last. They poured from my mouth in a torrent of doubt and despair. Would I be able to come, become a monk again? How would I be able to do that? Which teacher should I go to? What should I do after I become a monk? What kind of monk did I want to become? How could I be able to benefit others as well as myself as a monk? With Buddhist teachings as deep and vast as the ocean, where should I start? With innumerable methods of practice, which method should I choose? On and on I went, hoping this monk, who seemed so free and at ease with himself, would resolve these questions once and for all. But Ling Yuan's response was simply to ask me if I had any more questions each time I paused to take a breath. On and on I went, pouring out my heart, all my pent-up frustration and confusion. Finally, Ling Yuan sighed, lifted his hand and struck the bed hard. Put it down! He shouted at me. It was a shocking, startling command. Suddenly my mind snapped. I poured sweat and felt a great weight lifted from me. In a flash, the cloud and fog dissipated. The hideous miasma of kumen that had enveloped me vanished. In its place was a profound sense of well-being. My whole body felt cool and extremely relaxed. Any further questioning seemed unnecessary. There was nothing where my doubts and despair had been, and no problem anywhere in the world. Everything had gone. I didn't say a word, but just sat with Ling Yuan. I was extremely happy. The next day the whole world was fresh, as if I was seeing it for the first time. This was my first meeting with a great master. He did not acknowledge me as a student. Should I follow you? I asked before we parted. That's your problem, he replied. I received no words of encouragement or direction from him, but after that night my mind settled. I still responded to temptation with feelings of desire, hatred, fear, worry or vanity but I was able to let go of these mental reactions immediately. Once I let go, I felt very much at ease. For example, later in life, the government wanted to appoint me to a seat in the Congress, an opportunity that many people coveted. I saw it as a temptation and I let it go. Later, when I was in Japan, someone offered me their daughter's hand in marriage and abbotship in a temple during a tense political period when it looked like I might be deported back to Taiwan. One wonders if the daughter had any say in the matter at all. But, of course, he declined. After my encounter with Ling Yuan, I knew very clearly what my life was about and how to proceed. I had undergone a tremendous transformation. Suddenly, he experienced his, all these complications, all, this, all his preoccupations dropping away. 
this is could uh, say a combination of um, the building up of all this frustration these all these questions and this intuitive putting it all down instruction perfect timing this master able to see when he could tip the balance and Sheng um, Yin being able to, to drop all this stuff it's not even a matter of the will but, but of, a, of a release a getting to a point where this occurs and that's an important point we just in our practice we can't manufacture something like this we we just do the practice we just engage in it wholeheartedly we just keep coming back just getting involved in the breath or in the question as much as we can as fully as we can and leaving the rest up to karma to our text <clears throat> we take refuge in the Dharma the Dharma is our path everything in our life is a constant process of learning and discovering as we were talking about the other day we now know that that the whole universe is in a constant process of unfolding evolving and we are part of that everything in our life is to be related to fully everything is the path constantly changing constantly becoming something else there is absolutely nothing that remains the same even for one minute so we have many ups and downs many waves in the ocean of our life taking refuge in the Dharma means that we relate fully to every single thing that happens. Whatever we encounter is our one and only life. Every person we encounter is our life. We take refuge in the Sangha. We know how much it means to us to sit together, 
the atmosphere is created here by all of us. With our sincere attitude, we strengthen one another. We sit down here together and share a sense of trust. We're in in creating this atmosphere together. Um, we're like a flock of geese. Geese create this wave when they when they flap their wings, that that um, radiates around them, and this is where the the V formation comes in because the goose behind the lead goose um, slots into to a, a position in that in that waveform. And uh, all the geese in that waveform can both contribute to the energy of the wave or receive energy from it when their when their um, their energy is, is their own energy is flagging. And it's very much the same for us in Sishin. Our our efforts contribute to an atmosphere, as Maureen Stewart calls it, a wave on which we travel. And it's, it's palpable. You can walk into the zendo and feel it. We strengthen each other through this process. It's not only, not only do we cre- create a, a sense of trust but also uh, we feel uh, the responsibility to, to others just to sit with full effort not only for our, for our own benefit but uh, in order to contribute to the group Somebody said, but what if I cry in the zendo? Then cry. You're in wonderful company. We all understand this feeling. What if I laugh? Laugh. Laugh. You're in wonderful company. It may lighten all our hearts. We're not here to judge you, to say that's bad, you don't do that in the zendo. We trust one another and we have a large-scale friendship. I may not see you for months at a time, but when I do see you, it's as if we just said hello five minutes ago, goodbye five minutes ago, and we're back again. I certainly feel this coming, coming here and seeing people that I haven't seen for a year. Um, though, we, though we may... Uh, have a few more grey hairs than we did before. Uh, there is a sense of um, kinship, this, this um, sense of continuity. We have this trust and this friendship, but at the same time we have to ha- stand on our own two feet. We're working together, sitting together, helping each other, but not in a way that we become dependent on each other's help, 
that would be taking away something very important. We become independent and then we can really depend on one another. We have a clean, clear friendship without expectations and without demands. We together we create <coughs> this this vessel that is Sishin, um, a container for all that we go through, all the ups and the downs, tears, laughter. All the letting go that we do, becoming naked body exposed in a golden breeze. This, this sense of, of, of safety that we, we can have as, as a Sangha sitting together um, may, be, may be variable for us. Um, letting go may be, may be hard. Um, Often we we can have different kinds of you could say trust issues. There may be um, good personal or historical reasons uh, for it being hard for us to to trust. Think of all the different kinds of traumas uh, people have. In their, in their past, both in terms of personal traumas and historical traumas. Holocaust, slavery, war, famine, exile, genocide. This goes on and on, and this is just looking at the, the, the big picture traumas. But at the same time as we, we have this, these, these dark, deeply painful things in our history that, that are, are there, they don't just go away. At the same time, we are sovereign and free. And we, we choose freedom. We choo- Every time we drop our thoughts and come back to the practice, we're affirming our freedom. We're choosing not to be defined by our traumas. I think think it was Toni Morrison who said, the purpose of freedom is to free somebody else. The degree to which we can really um, find our independence, our, our sovereignty, then we'll be able to um, assist in others doing the same. 
Every day we chant the four great vows. In chanting them, we are reminded again and again of what our work is. It is an impossible task. How can we sincerely vow to do what we cannot do? We say, all beings without number I vow to liberate. Surely that's, that's impossible, as she says. How do, we, how do we keep our vow if it's an impossible vow? She goes on, these vows are Buddhist vows. And in Buddhism, there is the understanding that the I of I vow, this intentional I, is an illusion. So the first realization with these vows is that I cannot undertake anything. And with this, the first step in our path is actualized. The I is the obstacle. We get rid of it. And here, I just beg to differ, it's a, it's a small point, but I would say it's not so much the I that is the obstacle, but our preoccupation with it, the way in which we identify with it and um, get obsessed by, by what we imagine to be its, its, its welfare. But if we can let go of this pre- preoccupation, if we can let the universe work through us, then we can do what we're called to do. We will be able to do the work of saving all sentient beings. We become the instrument that is played by forces greater than us. So now we put our palms together with a different attitude, not I vowing, but giving myself up to the carrying out of the vow. Giving myself up to the carrying out of the vow. This is... This is really what what Sishin, what our practice is all about, giving ourselves up, offering. If this attitude of giving ourselves wholeheartedly and completely is truly practiced in whatever we are doing, the touchiness of I, the stiffness of ego, is softened. Just as we experience in Sishin, there is no thought of I doing anything, and this suffering, and in this softening, our suffering is decreased. What a relief it is when we f- we feel the the I softening, when we let go of that stiffness, that touchiness of uh, the, the the I, our prickliness. When our, when our hackles aren't raised at every slight criticism or um, negative piece of negative feedback.
This softening is also the preparation for the working through of our passions, which we all have. Our emotional reactions, great or small, are aptly called in Buddhism the fires. The fire of sadness, the fire of loneliness, the fire of anger. With the attitude of giving ourselves, we can also give ourselves to the fires, rather than avoiding or refusing them or being carried away by them. Usually we refuse to come into contact with those fires, or we give in and are carried away by them, swept away. We are not willing to suffer their irrational force, and so it remains wild and in need of humanizing. Neither refusing nor letting it rip, this is compassion for ourselves. Giving ourselves into the fires again and again and again, they will consume me, that's an inverted commas, uh, which is a real purification. They will consume the ego. With the absence of that ego, the fuel is gone and the fires revert to what they have always been, our own true Buddha nature. Uh, in, the, in the Lotus Sutra, it says, living in the world is like living in a house on fire. We are, we are subject to the, the fires of our passions. I don't think it's an accident that um, Greta Thunberg, the um, school strike for climate leader, um, has said that um, our house is burning. We're living in a house on fire. This, this um, image from the Lotus Sutra is, is um, coalescing and becoming solidified as our actual physical condition here on this earth. This is our, this is our collective karmic predicament that we find ourselves. So perhaps more, even more urgently than, than before, we need to find out a way to work with these fires, both inside us and around us. Maureen Stewart here instructs us to, instructs us to give ourselves to the fires. What does that mean? It, we can sometimes use practice to to keep these fires at, at, at bay, what somebody is called spiritual bypassing. But actually essential to spiritual work is, is really coming to know these fires for ourselves. So to, if some strong passion arises, to allow ourselves to feel that in the body be curious about it while at the same time not identifying with the accompanying stories that come with the passion in other words to 
to avoid falling into uh, cognitive fusion where we react to our thoughts as if they were true. Uh, key to this is seeing our thoughts and reacting to them as thoughts. And, and allowing ourselves to the experience of our feelings as feelings. With curiosity, with, with um, mindfulness. Bringing as much awareness as we can to the process. And that goes, I guess this goes also for feeling the passions of others, to, to open ourselves without falling into reactivity. To open our hearts and also be vigilant. And the wonderful thing is that when we we are able to do this, then um, we can more clearly see that everything that arises is is the functioning of our Buddha nature. The central core of British Buddhist practice is anatta, no I. With this illusion of I gone, everything can be seen as it really is, different but not separate. There is no clinging, no alienation, just a warm connection with what is. Buddha's teaching began with suffering and the way out of suffering, and he taught us through his own life, his birth, his awakening and his death, the way out of loneliness, separation and the fear of death. If there is no I, if the shell of I is cracked, the liberation of the heart naturally shines forth and acts in peace and joy for all beings. We are able, we are able to share this, this, this joy and this deep peace with others to influence, moderate a world that's that's burning. And surely this this some counter to um, these the fires that are swirling in in our society is so essential to, to be able to to regard all the the fear and anxiety and, and hostility and the alienation in the world and not be uh, thrown off balance, not to be completely consumed by these passions. This path so sh- clearly shown to us 
is a way out of the illusion of I, a way out of loneliness, separation and fear of death. Only I can fear. Without I, there is no fear. It says in the Heart Sutra, no hindrance in the mind, therefore no fear. When the ego shell is cracked, the wonderful warmth of the human heart is released. It is liberated. It shines, flows, acts. True Buddhist compassion warms and inspires us on the way. True Buddhist wisdom lights our dark places and helps us out of our suffering. It helps us to feel peace and joy for all beings. At the end of the Bodhisattva's vow, we chant, May we extend this mind over the whole universe, so that we and all beings together may attain maturity in Buddha's wisdom. This is our Zen practice. What is our Zen practice, if not this? This is a... a a chant that we we don't do in our um, tradition. Um, it's by Torage Zenji, um, a Japanese um, Rinzai master, lived from 1721 to 1792. It's called the the Bodhisattva's Vow, and just 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 to read the the a little bit of it, not the whole thing. It starts. When I regard the true nature of the many dharmas, I find them all to be sacred forms of the Tathagata's never-failing essence. Each particle of matter, each moment, is no other than the Tathagata's inexpressible radiance. The Tathagata, of course, is is in uh, one way referring to the Buddha, meaning the thus come one. It goes on, With this realization, our virtuous ancestors, with compassionate minds and hearts, gave tender care to beasts and birds. Among us, in our own daily lives, who was not reverently grateful for the protections of life, food, drink and clothing? Though they are inanimate things, they are nonetheless the warm flesh and blood, the merciful incarnations of the Buddha." And just going to the to the end part of this chant. At the peak of each thought, a lotus flower opens, and on each flower, flower there is revealed a Buddha. Everywhere is the pure land and its beauty. We see fully the Tathagata's radiant light right where we are. May we extend it throughout the world, so we and all beings become mature in Buddha's wisdom. This is a slightly different translation of the, of the bit that um, Maureen Stewart is, is quoting here in her, in her Taisho. So may we and all beings become mature in Buddha's wisdom. Maturity, if we could just grow up as a species... How wonderful that would be. Each of us has to play our part in this. Every single one of us. This is something that really matters. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.
beings without number, I vow to liberate endless flying passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. 